I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Dominic Fifield of The Athletic and Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is the Harry Houdini of football management. Just when you think he's under lock and key, with no form of escape, he slips his chains and walks free without an apparent care in the world. The problem is that Manchester United's problems are recurring. Lack of balance in attack, an unstable midfield, the occasional defensive howler. A simple question with a multi-layered answer, Seb. How long can this go on? Eternity? Question mark? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> well, it, it feels like it's a, a cycle that we never really escape from, Mike. It's a good patch of form, bad patch of form, and one never seems to inform the other. And I, I think that's part of the problem. It's that Manchester United have these moments when sometimes they play badly and win, sometimes they play badly and lose. But it never seems to educate anything going forward. And it feels as if Manchester United as an organisation have stopped asking themselves what if. I mean, if you think back to the the Frank Lampard situation at Chelsea, you could make the argument that, oh, he's doing okay and it's, it's good enough. But the real question was, what could somebody else do with this team, with this group of players? And, and that's really the problem at Manchester United. It seems like, okay, you, you know, you can get a last-minute winner against Villarreal and, you know, that's good news and it's just about good enough. But it's not really the point and it, it shouldn't really be the point at a club of that size for me. Yeah. As a manager, we used to managers being the, the lightning rods, aren't we, Dom? It's quite timely in a way, I suppose, that United's next game is at home against Everton on Saturday lunchtime, the BT Sport game. It'll come up against Rafa Benitez. Now, you saw Rafa under pressure at Chelsea. He's been consistent in the way that he's dealt with criticism, which, frankly, is just to ignore it. Is that probably Ollie's best policy in this situation? Yeah, he, he's probably that's probably how he will address it. Uh, it's a slightly different situation to Rafa because back in 2012 when he replaced Roberto Di Matteo, actually after Chelsea had lost a game in, in Turin to Juventus, Benitez had the support of the of the board of the the hierarchy that was appointing him obviously as an interim manager for the rest of that season but it was the, it was the supporter base that was so anti and vehemently against him after his given his connections with Liverpool 
with Solskjaer at United, I get the impression that the, that the fans are sort of, they're willing him, desperately willing him to, to succeed because they don't want a favourite son of theirs losing his job. And, and they don't want to face up to the reality that maybe, maybe there would be better candidates out there potentially to to succeed him. That said, though, I do think there are a couple of factors. I think Ed Woodward obviously leaving at the end of the year. Would Ed Woodward want a, a change of manager now? Would he want to instigate a change just before he leaves? He probably wants to leave United in a, in a position where they've got a bit of stability there with a, with a manager in place who's the longest serving manager since Fergie, I imagine, at, at United. Similarly, I say that there's a, there's a, there are outstanding candidates out there. Beyond Antonio Conte, I'm not sure how many there are, and I'm not quite sure how Antonio Conte would fare at, at United either. I think people know what they're appointing. They bring Conte in now, and it's someone who's going to rock the boat, which, again, I think the hierarchy would be slightly perturbed at the thought of, even if, if he's a successful manager. So United would want to avoid the situation, say, that Tottenham found themselves in, where they... They make the change and then end up appointing somebody that was 8th, ninth, 10th on their list of potential replacements. Maybe United would have more cash and, make, and, and would be more attractive to, to other candidates out there. But they, could, they could flex their muscles and try and tempt people out of other clubs as well and they wouldn't be afraid of paying compensation. But it just seems a bit too much upheaval now that the season is underway. So I, I suspect that we, we've, got, we've got this boom and bust situation with Solskjaer for some while yet, but potentially through to the end of this season. And then if United haven't won anything on the back of spending the money they spent in the summer and making the improvements they made in the summer to the squad, almost filling in holes that existed in that team, then maybe they would that would force their hand and they would have to look at the managerial situation come next year. Mm, yeah, that's, a, that's a really good point, isn't it, Seb? That if you look around, where are the new you know, marquee managerial names coming from? You know, we've got a situation at Barcelona at the moment where Ronald Koeman is you know, the proverbial dead man walking mm. um, or dead man whinging probably is closer <laughs> to the truth. Conte's mentioned in that context. In the wider sense, where are the new coaching stars coming from? Germany? Well, not for me. I mean, I, I don't really see anyone who's challenging the orthodoxy. I mean, Julian Nagelsmann has obviously been a name for some time, but he's now in situ at Bayern Munich and doing quite a good job and, you know, resuscitating a few careers and, you know, making a real player out of Leroy Sane. I think it's very interesting that someone like Antonio Conte gets mentioned in connection with, with Barcelona because it, it shows just how strange the world is and just how short of options they've become because I can't, I couldn't imagine someone worse in that environment than Absolutely. Antonio Conte. Oh, well. um, I think a couple of people interest me, uh, Marcelo Gallardo at River Plate, his resuscitation of River Plate has been... I'd say remarkable, actually, but he shows no willingness to leave or cut his contract short. Ruben Amarim at Sporting Lisbon or Sporting Club of Portugal, as we're supposed to call them. But I, I wouldn't say I don't. I don't see a new movement, if that makes sense. I don't see a kind of the the, the flag bearers of a new ideology on the horizon. So it's some um, slim pickings, and it's going to be a little bit of a, a merry-go-round. I would have thought for the major clubs for a while. You know, the other thing is that. This is not the time for a super club or a, an, an aspiring super club to take a risk. It's not the time for somebody to pluck somebody with interesting ideas out of a, a mid-level situation and say, right, well, here's the keys. You know, because 
you know, it's never been more important for clubs to feel secure about their revenue streams and their progress and their management of their assets. And those aren't the conditions where you want to give control to somebody without a proven record of success at the highest level. And there just aren't that many of those guys around or available at the moment. Mm, yeah, to, to take that point a bit further, Dom, you know, clubs protecting revenue streams, their marketing organisations or certainly marketing strategies. Ronaldo's part of that big picture. Is he a double-edged sword? You scored five goals in six games. I think the rest of the team has scored only four between them in that time. Obviously, great at the big occasion, but is he increasingly unable to conform to any structure? Certainly, when you see United trying to press, he's just nowhere near it, is he? No, I was actually reading a, a piece this morning which was detailing his his lack of pressing. He's actually of of the of the forwards in the in the Premier League who have played two hundred and seventy minutes this season. He's actually averaging two point seven presses per game, which is well well <laughs> off the pace. I mean, I think the next the next is Alan San Maximin with five point two. So I mean, he's 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 well adrift at the foot of that that particular list, but. But but that's not why they bought him. I mean, they knew that when they when they brought him in. What they what they bought him for was for moments like Wednesday night against against Villarreal and and a player that can not do very much during a game, maybe. But when they when they kill a moment arrives at his feet in stoppage time at the end, he he doesn't miss it. He takes that chance. I agree with you. I think I think ultimately the collective may suffer a bit in terms of a a pattern of play. And a style of play when you have someone like Ronaldo who comes in uh, surrounded by energy and and dynamism and, and and kids, but he he won't supply that same level of dynamism in terms of the press, in terms of the work rate off the ball. But he'll add to it in other ways. I mean, it, it's just about striking a balance. And you know, a player that has scored five and six so far for for United and and has been. Has, has taken the opportunities that have come his way, and you know he'll take the penalties from now on, presumably in the Premier League as well. So that that will uh, <laughs> that will, that tally will will swell considerably. I think I think that probably probably balances it out in in the long run. I mean, it's what well, sorry in the short in the short term in the long run, the strategy of the team, the philosophy of the team may suffer. I think it's a similar situation really at Chelsea. To be honest, I think they've they've sort of become a bit obsessed. With getting the ball to the the superstar striker in the same way that United have, and maybe forgotten some of the things that they were doing well last season, both of those teams actually. So, but it's early days. I mean, it's, they've only been there for what a little over a month. So let's let's see let's see where they are in a couple of months' time. Let's see whether they've they've addressed that balance better. There was a really interesting interview that James Horncastle did with Leonardo Bonucci on the Athletic, and Bonucci. He was talking about Ronaldo's virtues and his time at Juventus. He said that, uh, you know, among all the kind of the, the commonly known anecdotes about, you know, whether people have peanut butter for breakfast or, you know, ketchup for lunch or whatever, he said there were players who became sort of mentally, they expected Ronaldo to do something miraculous in every game and secure points. And it led to a kind of collective drop off or, you know, sort of an unwitting dropping of standards. And that's very, very interesting because that's a kind of, I think we've seen, you're quite right, it's very, very early days, but there's a little bit of that at Manchester United. There's this expectation that, well, we don't actually have to play that well. 
because Ronaldo will score goals and that will get us out of trouble. I'm not saying that their players go into the game with that mindset. I think that becomes a very easy trap to fall into, though. And that's the sort of the counterbalance to all the stuff about, oh, isn't he a great professional? And the example he sets, which I would question, but, you know, that there is a negative to that. So you're quite right to say it's a double-edged sword, Mike. Yeah, and I suppose also... You know, tangentially, at least, is, is having an effect on, on Jaden Sancho. Gareth Southgate admitted, Dom, that Sancho is lucky to be in his England squad. You know, a, a typical observation. He wants to get him in there, give him a bit of TLC. Where is Sancho? You know, Sancho needs to make an impact. Is the system set up to enable him to make that sort of impact? No, not at the moment. I mean, as far as I understood it, Sancho is being brought in to play off the right. And he was going to be the. You're going to have Rashford or on the operating off the left, and at the time it was sort of Greenwood, Cavani through the middle or whatever, and and uh, and then Sancho was going to balance it up, and they were going to be there was going to be a lot of fluid movement, a lot of lot of a lot of pace, and that was that was going to work where the balance was now, partly because of Rashford's injury in the in his absence, Sancho's opportunities at United so far have been off the left, which. It doesn't suit him potentially. I mean, it's again. I just think it's. I think it's very, very, very early days in his Manchester United career, and he hasn't really had a chance to to play in the position that he was bought to to occupy. Maybe with the the players that, that Solskjaer envisaged would be operating around him as well. Yet, so let's. I think again, it's just a, it's going to be a bit of a bit of patience. Seventy-five million pounds does not buy necessarily necessarily anymore buy you a player that hits the ground running and and rattles in ten goals in his first six games with fifteen assists thrown in. I mean, it's it's, it's the weird world that we live in. He's come back into. I mean, he didn't have any experience of the of the Premier League prior to going off to Dortmund. So. I think again a period of adjustment for such someone so young, someone who had a frustrating summer, maybe didn't make the impact that he'd envisaged at the European Championships. There've been a few players like that who the hangover has sort of endured into the into the Premier League season so far. But again, I'd I'd, I'd really assess Sancho in the new year, in a year's time, two years time, and by then I would imagine a player of his talent will have imposed himself, and we'll be seeing the form that that so illuminated Borussia Dortmund. Yeah, well, I suppose looking in from the outside, it's all so simple, isn't it? I, I noticed, um, uh, Seb, Ashley Lung came up with a great idea of just going out and buying PSG's Marco Verratti. If only, eh? <laughs> yeah, no, I also saw Rio Fernand saying that uh, Manchester United should have signed Federico Chiesa as well. <laughs> like, it's kind of, it's sort of real-life football manager. Like, I, Jane Sancho, Jane Sancho is a fabulous player. And if Jadon Sancho is not success at Manchester United, that will be Manchester United's fault. I just fear that this might be one of those situations in which we talked at the beginning of the podcast about you know how good that coaching staff is. It reminds me a little bit of the Kai Harvard situation last summer. You know, we 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 got to this stage of the season, and you know people were questioning why Chelsea spent so much money on him. He finishes the year under a different coach, scoring the winner in the Champions League final. Like it's it's a you have a, all that when, when you buy a player, especially now because the market is skewed a lot younger. You buy a set of attributes, and you buy young, and you buy someone that is on a upward trajectory. You are not buying a ready-made product because that's really the only way to get value in this market. So you you have to create the conditions for that player to succeed. And like you both said, this is someone 
without any experience in the Premier League. He needs to be acclimatised properly. So this has to be a process and you need to have the right people managing that process. I'm not saying the United don't, but that's still a question mark in my mind. Sancho, I feel Sancho still exists a little bit under the radar in England because so much of the success occurred in Germany and he built his reputation here in, in the Bundesliga. But an incredible player, like a generationally talented player. So it will be, if we're, if we're still having this conversation in six months' time, we need a deeper autopsy than just a kind of, well, you know, he needs to, it shouldn't just be about the player is what I'm trying to say. Mm, yeah. Just switching back to Antonio Conte, Dom, you know, he's been a bit lively in the, in the press lately. <laughs> Thomas Tuchel apparently doesn't know how to use Lukaku. Uh, you were in um, Turin. Can you give a pricey on that argument, please? I think that's a bit, probably a bit unfair on Antonio Conte. He was actually quite measured in what he was saying. He didn't want to go out and openly criticise Tuchel. He wasn't, he wasn't doing that. He was just saying that on that occasion, I think, and maybe against City on, on Saturday, that maybe some of the, the delivery into Lukaku wasn't making the most of his assets. And I think Thomas Tuchel would accept that as well, to be honest. The one area that, that has been of concern principally at Chelsea since Lukaku arrived has been how the number 10, so to speak, in his 3-4-2-1, the two, operate and getting that balance right, you know, finding finding Lukaku in areas that he wants to be found and can do inflict damage on opponents. And Chelsea have been off the radar on that and skewed on that really since they came back from the international break last month they haven't played well. I mean, okay, they 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 did well at Spurs in a, in the second half, and they they had moments against Aston Villa, and they won those two games handsomely. But but actually, if you actually watch Chelsea, they haven't played well in those in any game since since the the teams the, the club football resumed in in September, and they just look at like a collective that is striving to to work out a how to use Lukaku, and that there'd be moments even even actually in the in the games. You know the Arsenal game at the Emirates, where we've got world-class players like world-class players in midfield, players who've won everything in Jorginho or or, or Kante, and they they've they haven't played the passes that Lukaku's wanted them to play because they're just not used to having a player like him in their setup. He's he, he's what they lacked last year, and they haven't really had enough time yet, maybe to to work with him and and to train with him, and they have had a a lot of games. I mean, there's no, there's no very little time in, in the week for them to be working on tactics and stuff like this. And at this point, you have to accept that. I, I suspect that, that I know that a lot of Chelsea players will disappear off an international duty now, but I suspect that the Chelsea that, that starts after this next international window will be slightly tweaked. I think Tuchel may spend the next few weeks pondering even a change of formation because he, he, he knows he has to bring the best out of Lukaku and, Really, we only saw one moment in Turin where he he rolled Benucci and and spun off. It was actually a pass from Ross Barkley. I mean, that it wasn't Jorginho, it wasn't Kovacic, it was Conte wasn't there. It was Barkley who was playing that pass, and he he missed the chance. But he only had two opportunities in that game, and really he 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 hasn't. He's been starved of of the ball in 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 dangerous areas in the last few matches, and they they need to work on the. Uh, the approach they need to get Mason Mount fit again. They need to get some. They need to move the ball quicker, and they need to remember that they can play a balls over the top now, because they've got somebody who will run the channels as well as score goals for them. Yeah, well, 
I suppose a week's a long time in football, isn't it? And you know, only this time last week we were talking of them rampaging through Europe and the Premier League. What about the lack of mental sharpness, which was something cited by Tuchel? Because this is such a remorseless business, Seb, does does that sort of have any resonance for you? There's, that might be part of the problem. Hey, without without question, Mike. This is the one of the unseen costs of football's calendar now is you know a, a kind of a, sort of the dead behind the eyes look that a lot of players have got because if you have to play as many games as they do in such a short space of time how can you be on anything other than an autopilot you just don't have the time to recover you don't have the time to properly prepare for games you don't really have the time to i suppose develop you just have to be in a constant state of performance and it's part of a wider point and probably an entirely different podcast where we talk about things like World Cups every two years or expanded European championships or bigger Champions Leagues. It's just, it's the cost of it. And football isn't concerned enough about this. When we talk about burnout, we think about soft tissue muscle injuries and players' legs going by the time they're 28, 29. Well, in reality, we should thinking about like, you know, what are we sacrificing in terms of creativity? Things we love about the game, like the, you know, the pass around the corner, the little flick, the little moment of, you know, the unseen opportunity that's carved out by a kind of a, you know, a, a Juan Regalme type, you know, like it's, these are the things that are potentially being sacrificed. And so I've got a, an awful lot of sympathy for any manager that talks about this stuff. It's going to be used as an excuse by some, and it's going to be used at the wrong times and at the wrong moments and in ways which seem quite contrived, but is a very valid point that we need to be we need to pay much more attention to. It's no coincidence that that in that second half in Turin, when he makes five changes to his his lineup over in, in three three sort of batches, the triple substitution in the middle being the key one, he's he's brought on three players who are young, who haven't played very much football, who are fresh mentally, fresh physically, and and, and also desperate to prove that they belong in this company. And the the guys he's brought off, Jorginho has has not stopped playing football since he was about twelve. He's not had a he's not had a, a moment's release or relief. Cesar Aspilicueta's in his fifties now pretty much and he's and he's he's been asked to play right wing back against Manchester City on Saturday and right wing back against Juventus in, in midweek. I mean it's it's I think it's the key thing to Chelsea and the jaded performance they gave in midweek was that actually, we we talk about squad depth and how brilliantly how brilliant their squad is, but the four players that are absent are all their energy. That's their dynamism. And Golo Kante's running is we all know about that. We don't need to go into that again. Mason Mount, his his reputation is soaring in absentia at the moment because Chelsea just look diminished without him. I mean, he hasn't had a particularly good season yet, but he links them so well. And when you chuck in, remember that Christian Pulisic. Who, who would add something, pace, speed of thought to this, you know, if he was fully fit and in this team, that would add another dimension. And and Reese James's energy on the right flank. I mean, it's it's not rocket science on that front either. They they lack a freshness on, on every front. And I think that they, they're limping into this international window. Southampton won't be easy for them this weekend. But I, I suspect they'll take stock and come back much stronger next month or later this month. Yeah, well, when we're talking about busy weeks, I suppose we look at Manchester City, Chelsea, PSG, and now on Sunday, Liverpool. Given that sort of workload, uh, again, physical as as well as mental, Seb, are they likely to be able to arrest Liverpool's momentum, which looks to be building? 
I mean, the absence is Liverpool have concerned me a little bit. Trent Alexander-Arnold will miss the game, so that's a little bit of a problem, particularly on the basis that they'll be facing a team with, you know, pretty dynamic inside forwards. I've been really impressed, though. Like, I, I, I've enjoyed seeing Curtis Jones play well. I think he's a, an excellent player in the making. It's a real shame, obviously, that Liverpool lost Harvey Elliott. I think that's a fascinating game. I, I think it's also... It's funny because Liverpool, Liverpool sort of entered the season with this... It's a very negative, it's surrounded by this very negative atmosphere because, you know, they were the one club who hadn't gone and spent £100 million on somebody, which is a, you know, a kind of an unwitting statement about modern football, I suppose. But they've played ever so well in, you know, for, for most of this season. They, you know, the one blip was probably the Chelsea game at Anfield when they didn't capitalise on that situation. But it's funny, like it's, it's, and even Manchester City, I think I was really surprised by what happened at Stamford Bridge when Man City went there because uh, Don's touched on it already but City were kind of dominant I mean that, that game could have probably finished 2 or 3 nil. the amount of chances the City created surprised me a little bit and this is fascinating I, I can't really call it but it's not the game that I thought would end up being decisive it's funny because you, you looked at what Manchester United did at the summer strengthening you know lots of key departments spent a huge amount of money Chelsea's own spending was very aggressive of course and then Liverpool are the argument for continuity, even though they have these holes in their side and weirdly still question marks about their midfield, you know, still concerns about the front three getting older and, you know, what they have in reserve. It's been very, very impressive. Yeah, I suppose as we go through this season, there are going to be certain questions which we can become probably over-familiar with. Probably one that we were already at that point is whether City will eventually be caught out by their lack of a, a traditional nine. Do you think they can continue to get enough goals from elsewhere and through a different system, Dom? Well, they did last year. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I mean, it's... I I, I thought... I, I, I probably fell into the trap of of thinking that their, their pursuit of Kane over the summer almost became obsessive. Ooh. Well, obsessive to the point where they didn't actually seem to put in that many bids for him, though. I, I suspect at some point they will address it. It may not be this season. It's probably going to be next summer. But I, they've got the ammunition. They've got the armoury to, to to make do. And, and you know what? The We're too easily hoodwinked into, into thinking City can't cope with things. Again, I'm guilty of this. I, I thought Chelsea would beat them last Saturday. But what it what it what it was what it ended up was was a reminder of just how brilliant Manchester City can be when their press works when they're when they're clicking into gear and yeah you might argue that they were a bit profligate and, and that that's that is the argument for having a number nine but the system itself is just so slick and so refined that it's more than capable of winning them another Premier League title. It was a timely reminder because they'd had that slow start not as bad as last year. I mean, God, they were mid table this time last year. But they that was just them just making sure that everybody's well aware that, that Manchester City are going to be a proper threat again this season. And the game this weekend, I don't know, it's something, I know it's only, we're only talking a couple of years or two or three years, but it sort of feels a throwback. It's sort of old school. Well, these these are the two principal forces in the, in the Premier League, don't you forget it type occasion. And it's up to Chelsea and Manchester United and... And that's it, really, to, to to see whether they can muscle their way in between to, well, to, to show that they deserve a title. 
Mention of Harry Kane there, Seb. He scored his 13th hat-trick for Spurs on Thursday night against the might of NS Mura. It's one of those games we don't really learn very much, do we? You know, he's terrific when he comes on. Lucas, son, to a degree, Lo Celso is, is worthy of um, you know any team at the moment. Your Spurs, there are a lot of whispers and moans around. Nuno, I think the one quote was uncommunicative to the point of being distance. Is this going to end well? <laughs> no. <laughs> I the thing is, what strikes me as strange is this is a this is a coach who was adored in Wolverhampton. I was work at Wolves, but I mean in the city, not just the team. Like I, I spent a lot of time there during their first season back in the Premier League. I spent a little bit of time there ahead of a, an England under twenty one game the year before, and it was almost cultish the devotion to him. And compare that to now when. Players don't seem to like him. By the way, I'm kind of sick of hearing about what Tottenham players like and don't like. You know, they, the players that have been there for a long time, and I suspect the players who are feeding this information into the media cycle, well, you, you can't have it both ways. I mean, he sort of performances dropped to such an extent that Mauricio Pochettino got sacked. Jose Mourinho is a different type of manager altogether. He got sacked. Nuno Spirito Santo, slightly different personality, probably closer to Mourinho than to Pochettino on the verge of the sack or, you know, heading in that direction. So maybe maybe we should be sort of more concerned about individual performances than, you know, how chatty and friendly and matey the manager is. But, you know, it just seems, it seems like someone that could have done with a year off. Now, I understand the situation. He decided to, well, he decided to leave Molyneux probably because he'd reached the end of his cycle. Wolves' performances during that final season certainly indicated that something in that dynamic was wrong or had the, the tethers had frayed a little bit. Tottenham come along because he was cheap and free and because they had asked pretty much every other manager in Europe whether they wanted the job and they'd said no. And it's the kind of job that he probably felt unable to turn down. And I completely understand that. I don't blame him for taking the job. But it, were they to lose to Villa? Or let's put it a different way. If the tone of the performance this weekend is similar to what they produced against Arsenal, I think it's already untenable as a situation. Now, that's not me saying that it's entirely his fault. I think that managing director of football, Fabio Paratici, has got a lot to answer for. I think some of the decisions that were seemingly made over the summer were reprehensible. The uh, Rina Gattuso moment was utterly bizarre and indicated a complete lack of due diligence in terms of how fans were likely to react to a person of that nature. Daniel Levy is a topic we've done to death. I think his performance, his job performance the last couple of years has been highly questionable. So there's all kinds of things that you could potentially rip out at Tottenham. I think what matters is that a lot of the fans are just sick of it. Sick of the sight of the club. It's not the performance. It's not the losing. It's not the conceding goals, defensive mistakes. It's just the club. Right? It's furlough and bank loans and nonsense and... and over-focus on the stadium and the Dulux paint Twitter moment. You know, like, it, it's 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 just been a shambles. And at some point, like, competence has to win out. And you have, to, as a fan, I'm not talking to journalists, I'm talking as a fan, like someone that wants to be excited about a game at the weekend. Like, you have to be able to buy into something. You have to, you, you don't mind flaws, you don't mind losing, but you have to be able to see ahead into six months into the future, year into the future, where 
you can see, right, well, this might happen and we're going to do this and, and it's going to be worth my time and worth my money and, and, and worth my interest to pay attention to this team. It doesn't seem like that at Tottenham at the moment. Like it's, it's a, they have had an incredibly fortuitous situation. Mauricio Pochettino did wonderful things at Tottenham and all of that has been squandered very, very, very quickly. Absolute shambles. I, 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 I don't know if I got read this right, but I get the impression that Seb isn't very happy. Um, I have had a lack of sleep. And <laughs> You're overtired. My, I, well, like, the thing is, the thing is, is that I, I I got I got home to Germany late last night, and um, my wife and I got back to our house, and I, I sort of watched the Europa Conference League game, and you see sort of people clutching at straws, and oh, you know, oh, Kane hat trick, and you just like look at what you're commenting on. And with the greatest respect to the opposition, right? this is a team that were in a Champions League final a couple of years ago. And every time they take the field in this competition, I'm not being disrespectful of the nature of the tournament. I'm not one of those fans. I just think like this is a, every time one of these games takes place, it's a reminder of how sharp the fall has been and how bad the sequence of decisions has been, which have led to this point. Like if you wanted to, like if, you know, if Dom, as a Palace fan, you were put in as a kind of an agent of chaos into Tottenham, and you were you were you were sort of instructed to make a mess of where they got to, you couldn't have got them to this position quicker, even if you tried. It is absolutely hopeless. And I want to talk. Uh, I, I will stop boring on um, and complaining. <laughs> but um, Tottenham Hotspur Sports Trust, you know, Cat and Martin, both who I have a lot of time for, have called for kind of meetings with the club and clarity over what the what is meant by Tottenham DNA. Obviously, Daniel Levy released a, uh, wrote a, a comment piece in a match programme at the end of last season talking about returning to you know, Tottenham way of doing things, DNA, attacking football. The trust have asked for clarity over what any of that means or what the ambition is or the direction of the club is over the next few years. And I'm right behind that because I have absolutely no idea. Well, you know, I don't know what you're worried about, really, Seb. You know, according to, to Mr Levy, uh, you're worth three and a half billion pounds, which... Uh... Yeah, I'm just a legacy fan, Mike. Don't worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> There's obviously a real and present danger on Sunday, isn't there, Dom? Villa, they've impressed me very quietly this season and it does seem that Dean Smith is central to the what is a quite unusually cohesive approach. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm pleased with the way it's gone. It's nice to see them doing so well with, with Dean Smith at the helm and, and feeling so integral to it and, and how they're playing. And I, I worried a bit over the summer that, okay, the Grealish money came in, but they, they made ambitious signings. They made signings that, that reflected raised expectations. And when you start poorly on the back of making big money signings and you have a, let's say... A, a far from glamorous manager in place, then there tends to be a fool guy, and it tends to be that that figure. But I think he's. I think I'm right in saying that, that, that Villa fans really cherish having one of their own as a manager and guiding them through this. What is actually a really exciting rebirth of, of the club, and I'm and I'm just hoping that 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 the hierarchy retain that level of of patience and faith as well for, and I'm, you know, at the moment things are moving in the right direction. The team is playing well. I saw them at the league cup last week at Stanford bridge. Okay. You, you could have argued that they, 
it might have been worth them having a striker maybe on the bench who could have come on and, and just stamped a bit more authority on that occasion and, and maybe got, got them through before the, the penalties, which eventually cost them their place in the competition. But a lot of good young, talented players... The signings. Ramsey's a good player. Ra- isn't Ramsey, he? fantastic. I think, really good player. And yeah. and for him to sort of settle into that, to that that first team alongside McGinn, and and I'm not saying that I'm not saying they're not missing Jack Grealish because any team, particularly a, a, a club of that size, is going to miss a player of that caliber. But they seem to have talent at the squad to sort of get by and, and play in a slightly different way, and that that owes a lot. To, to Dean Smith and and the sort of pattern and progression that he's he's instigated there. I'll long may it continue. It's nice having a major force back in back in Birmingham and, and back in the Midlands and, and really pushing. I mean, I know Leicester have been doing their stuff in the East Midlands and, and doing it brilliantly and, and now the West Midlands have have responded as well. And and yeah, it's it's it, it feels comfortable and reassuring to have them back. Yeah, I think if you look through the levels as well, there's a lot of very good young talent at Villa. Uh, you know, I saw their under 23s. I think they won eight 0 the other day. The eighteens are on um, fire. I mean, and and I think that's actually weirdly it's making waves within the game, and not necessarily in a in a bad way. For the, I quite like seeing the established elite getting a bit ruffled by the presence of a a new power base. But I think I think they're they're taking a lot of players from rival clubs and really building their youth structure up. And I think, I think a few people have, uh, yeah, have been a bit unsettled by that and unnerved by it. Yeah. Well, live by the sword, die by the sword, I suspect. In terms of, you know, the other success story of the season, one which hasn't really been booming out, Brighton, you know, they're at home to Arsenal on Saturday evening. What are the lessons of their start? Is it just get a plan and stick to it? I think, yeah, I think I'd refine that a little bit. I'd say commit to a direction. Mm. It would have been really easy last year because obviously, you know, Brighton existed in the news cycle because of the XG issue and the chances and, you know, the inability to score goals. And it would have been very easy with, you know, a a sort of a um, softer ideology to play in a different way, to to play with a little less risk, with a little less ball control and to try and be a bit more of a percentage team. And I think this is the reward for it, what we're seeing. Now, listen, like they, they, I, th- I think they could probably go top of the league if they win it over the weekend. And clearly, even if they were to drop a little bit further down the league, that still represents a, an above-par performance. But I think it's a kind of... It's a reward for buying. And it's something that I kind of touched on in the reverse during my tearful Tottenham rant, <laughs> in that if you have an idea and if all the if all the sort of the pieces at your club are pointing in the same direction, you get something that not only is successful on the, on the pitch, but fans are really proud of. I mean, listen, to, I mean, follow, follow Brighton fans on Twitter at the moment. Like, they, 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 they have the thing that we all want, which is a not just pride in your football team, but a kind of like that enthusiasm, a kind of schoolboy enthusiasm for every match day because you, you can feel something building and you can feel them moving towards a level that they haven't occupied before. And it's just exciting. And Don talked about, you know, having another power in the, in the country, in the, in the Premier League. And obviously I, I don't right know there or would be there any, anytime soon. But I, what I think is interesting is having another story in the league. Like we're so wedded to title challenges and what's happening with the Champions League and, and all that stuff's really, really important. But like... 
from a fan's perspective, I want another team to sit down and watch at the weekend. When I was back in England, it used to be fun to go to a different ground and to feel the atmosphere and to feel something building. That was what Wolves felt like in their first season back in the Premier League. That's why it was so exhilarating. And Brian, you're in that territory because you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Like modern football is very predictable for a lot of teams. But when you get someone that's kind of bumping their head against the glass ceiling or challenging an orthodoxy or moving in a slightly different direction, punching above their weight, that's what you want going into weekend. And it's a great thing. Now, long may it continue. And uh, very well done, Graham Potter. And very well done, everyone at Brighton above him too, because other clubs would have um, would have panicked last season, I suspect. Yeah, that's true enough. There's going to be an obvious focus on Ben White, isn't there, Dom, who's probably in that sort of transition, that netherworld between clubs at the moment. What do you make of Arsenal now? You know, a couple of victories. Aaron Ramsdale's made a good impact. Where are they? Well, they, they are improving. I'm loath to to go too over the top just because, the, you know, the, the, their revival is based on a victory over Norwich, who I'm afraid everybody beats. Burnley, who haven't won a game yet this season in the, in the league and an absolutely hapless Tottenham team who, quite frankly, we should get Seb on to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's not get too carried away. I think Brighton will be far more of a, a test. And actually, if I'm honest, you could extend their run of games beyond, beyond Brighton. Palace with Vieira's return, Villa with everything that they're doing in, in, at the moment. Leads in the EFL Cup, and then a, a trip to to Leicester, and that's all through October. And I think those I think those games will tell us an awful lot more about where where Arsenal are in terms of their development. But but I would stress with with Arsenal, it's it again. God, I'm a stuck record. It's patience. It's a process. It's it's. Uh, I they 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 bought a lot of players in the summer and attracted an awful lot of of criticism. You only have to ask. Agents, we've we've done a survey that I think it's being we're publishing later this week um, of agents, and you know, ask them who who had the, which club had the worst transfer window, and almost to a man, they're saying Arsenal. But I, I suspect that in two years' time, this transfer window that's just gone will may look very different. In hindsight, we might think, wow, they didn't have put some le- groundwork and, and and put some quality into that club then that's that's really now hitting the the ground running and, and doing well for them. The problem is when you buy a lot of young players, a lot of very young players, it, it it will take them time. There will be inconsistency there. At the moment, Ramsdale's done very well, and on the basis of the last few games, actually looks an upgrade on Lee, on on Bert Leno. And and I don't know whether that will we'll be saying that in in four weeks' time because it may be that the inconsistency kicks back in for a player that's been relegated in each of his last two seasons with two different clubs. So, again, let's let's see how he does. Ben White is finding his feet slowly. This this game will mean a lot to him, but I think a lot of the strength. I mean, Odegaard for for a few million more than they got for for Willock. I think that's decent business, and he's he's a, a talented player with a lot of potential. I think a lot of their a lot of their players when they find their feet and find their rhythm, they will excel for them, and, and Arsenal will be in a far better position than. Than, than look possible after the first three games of this season, but it, Tommy Yossi has been great, Dom. As yeah, well. oh my, yeah, I'm he's... so so impressed with him. I, I also because he, when Arsenal were on the verge of signing him or just completed it, like 
I mean, he was, I thought sort of the way he was talked about in the media was a bit disrespectful, actually. I saw in a few places, you know, a couple of kind of giggling, talking heads, you know, sort of using him to mock Arsenal's transfer policy. And I felt like saying, well, he played pretty well for Bologna. And, you know, Arsenal last season finished kind of mid-table. And what, who do you want? I mean, you know, they're not going to sign Caffey from 15 years ago, are they? And they bought a very solid player who's come into a new league and who has adjusted to it immediately. Been very, very good. Locked down a problem position for him. And hey, Ramsdale as well, because, I mean, Ram, Arsenal were mocked for Ramsdale mm. by their own fans. People complained about it. And, and imagine being him. He's a young guy. Didn't have a great time last season at Sheffield United because, well, no one really had a great time at Sheffield United last season. And he's a goalkeeper. And of all the positions on the pitch, that's the one which depends on self-confidence the most. Comes into a team with, like, I mean, there are very few teams who, who um, you know, play in, uh, you know, as bright a spotlight as Arsenal do, particularly in regards to their own fans and the way they look at the side. And he's been great. And you have to respect that. So just a, it's, and I don't, like that, that, the sort of the agent thing about Arsenal's transfer window. Well, okay, but I mean, I'm not, I don't really enjoy hearing agents talk about inflated transfer fees and, and um, you know, if that's a problem, maybe let's regulate that market a little bit. <laughs> but it's, it's uh, I think some of the criticism has been unfair. Like, I'd, I'd love to say differently. I'd love to point and laugh at Arsenal, uh, as I have done in the past. But John Dom's absolutely right. In a couple of years' time, some of these players who you do have to pay above and beyond for now, that's just the game. Ever, no one's safe from that. Like, it's it's what they had to do. And I, I yeah, I think it's... um. Yeah, I think it's a bit. The, the criticism is um, it's a little bit disingenuous. I think actually, you mentioned Leicester earlier on, Dom. They're at Palace, off the back of a, a defeat, quite a sort of you know a vanilla type of defeat in um, Warsaw on Thursday night. Kasper Schmeichel didn't dodge any questions. He said, "Look, they needed to step up after the recent results they've had." What sort of performance do you expect from them at Palace and how do you expect your team to respond to that? I, well, I suspect what we'll see is an awful lot of Tielemann pinged passes over Joachim Anderson's left shoulder for Jamie Vardy to chase. And they probably would be advised to do that because Joachim Anderson, if, if he's had any faults since he's gone to Palace, it has been with dealing with those balls over the top into the space behind him. Leicester, Leicester will come good. Leicester have got an awful lot of talent. At the moment, they're not firing, they're not clicking, and it's probably the first prolonged sticky patch at this stage of a season under Brendan Rodgers. They've had their poor run-ins, which have cost them Champions League qualification in the last two seasons. But again, I think it's a... it's it, it's a a club that's integrating new players that have been disrupted by the absence of 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 key players for Farna. They've had some players that have that have looked slightly off the pace, and maybe that their their performances have dipped. And Soyuncu would come into that category, I think. James Madison as well. I don't think he's been himself this season so far. We're still waiting to see what Daka can do. Really, certainly in the Premier League. And Samara as well, you could you could argue as well that he's, he's still finding his feet. I think Leicester in November, December, January will be a real threat to everybody. But it might not be a bad time for Palace to be playing them this weekend. Yeah, 
finally, you know, we are entering the international break for good or ill. Gareth Southgate, Seb, he's impressing again, isn't he, with his holistic approach. I mean, Bellingham and Greenwood left out, but only after discussion with them and their families rather than their clubs. That struck a really nice chord to me. Me too, Mike. I like his honesty. Like I also, and I think we'd all share in this opinion, I like his willingness to talk about subjects which are a little bit tricky, which require a little bit of um, intelligence and savvy. I think we've seen in the past England managers who talk solely in platitudes. It's not obviously a condition exclusive to England managers, but Southgate is a real person rather than just a football person. And there is a difference. And I think the way that I like the fact that he understands that a young footballer is a delicate thing, that players who have a great deal of celebrity and fame and money in their early 20s are still sort of developing as people and need to be handled accordingly. And that he's willing to that he's willing to take the time. Because I, I think sometimes when players have been dropped in the past or when players have been left out, I think the way they've been handled has been extremely clumsy and damaging. And you've had situations where players have been left out of England squads without really knowing why. And Southgate seems to really understand that that's a problem. And I, I couldn't be more impressed. I also, I quite like the fact that he was willing to address the Jaden Sancho situation. We've talked about Sancho before, so it's you know not something to go back to. But I think other managers or other England coaches would, would have just glossed over that and wouldn't have been willing to say something as blunt, ultimately, as he did. And I... I think there's this balance between, yes, honesty, talking to parents, making sure a player is happy and understands his position and understands what a manager thinks of him. Because how many times, not in international football, in club football, how many times do we hear about players that, you know, who have a complete breakdown of communication with their coaching staff? I'm out of the team and I don't know why. No one talked to me. No one, no one spoke to me. You know, and that never seems to be the case with England. And, and that's really good because, yes, you have more time, but it's a... It creates a situation where there's a squad beyond the squad. So you have your 23 players that you know called up, but then you probably have, at the moment, around 30 who probably at least feel part of things. That's super, super important, especially when you end up going to tournaments and you need to, you know, be a, a collective organisation. So I, 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 I admire him greatly as a person. Whatever sort of his footballing flaws may be, I think he's a, a very decent, very decent human being. Can I can I just jump in on there? And just, I mean, I completely agree with Seb in terms of in terms of how Southgate deals with the signal. He's very mature in, in 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 the way that he yeah he communicates with his players and and, and around his players. I I do worry a bit about on this on this issue though that, that that what he's done may actually rub up rub the clubs up the wrong way. And you, you can argue well we don't care about that, but but the reality is. Thomas Tuchel will be looking at that squad and thinking, well, I don't, not sure I'd want Mason Mount and Reese James who are both carrying injuries uh, or just coming back into fitness, necessarily going off to play for England in this in this international break. And he seems to have sort of been quite accommodating with Borussia Dortmund and, and uh, Manchester United indirectly uh, by, by going to the players and saying Greenwood and, and Bellingham don't have to join up. Could he not have done that with Mason Mount and Reese James? Don't you think that kind of, I've certainly heard myself make this criticism before, but do you think maybe it's one of those situations where for a long time we wanted to detach the England squad from the big clubs or from, from we wanted to detach England players from their club identity? 
And I, I do agree with you. Like I, I can definitely hear Thomas Tuchel having an issue with that and I would understand it, but I kind of like it. It's a, it's a sort of player first, club second. And I think that's what England need. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah, mm. accept that. Yeah, you see, what, what I like about him is that he's unafraid to address wider, broader, arguably more important issues. Like he named his latest squad on the day a man was jailed for eight weeks for racially abusing West Brom's Remain Sawyers. He welcomed what he termed a move towards a tolerant society. Great. Later that evening, Glenn Kamara, the Rangers player, was continually booed by 10,000 school children who were allowed to watch Sparta Prague when their stadium was closed to adults as part of a punishment for previous racism. These kids abused other black players. They're children, for heaven's sake. It's certainly one of the most depressing incidents in football that I can recall. All football can do is register its disgust, throw clubs out of European competition, ban them for several seasons. The rest is up to parents and politicians. To be honest, I wish I had more hope. On that sombre note, I just want to thank Seb and Dom for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.